today on the Tearsheet Podcast. So the whole idea of open finance is powered by data, whereby the data from a financial institution or a brokerage is pulled into an experience that then powers you know, some other third-party experience. So I think data is the crux of open finance. The following was produced by Tearsheet Studios. We worked with payments provider Fiserv to create a podcast series about open finance and the work of empowering fintechs, brands, and FIs to collaborate and innovate together. In our third conversation in the series, we're speaking to Jamie Del Medico, General Manager of Fiserv's Aggregation and Information Services Unit. As we continue talking about the evolution of open finance, Jamie gives us some insight into the evolution of data processes within the fintech environment. I'm Jamie Delmedico. Um, I am at Fiserv, and I'm the general manager of a business unit within Fiserv that we call Aggregation and Information Services. Um, and essentially what that business is, is a, sort of a data platform where we enable connectivity to um, over 18,000 different data sources. Uh, those include small banks and credit unions, large banks and credit unions, uh, a full biller network, uh, cryptocurrency wallets, uh, and then brokerage and wealth management houses. Uh, and so that's kind of the underlying foundational element of the business unit is providing access uh, to those data sources via consumer permissioned access. Uh, and then on top of that, we layer a whole host of uh, different capabilities. So we have um, you know, personal financial management tools, uh, wealth advisor tools. So a wealth uh, advisor can see a 360 degree view of their customer, um, verification of both identity and account uh, verification for, for uses in you know, government um, for the purposes of making payments uh, via ACH or otherwise. Um, and so, you know, essentially the platform really starts with that underlying data platform. And then we create sort of these unique use cases uh, on top of that. And our customer bases span from, you know, financial institutions to fintechs, to merchants, uh, to governments looking to do an identity verification prior to making a disbursement of some kind. As part of this um, series of conversations we're having with Fiserv at Tearsheet, um, we are talking about this evolution um, towards open finance. And um, just speaking of foundational elements, like what, what's the role of data and aggregation, I guess, in your view of open finance? I think ultimately data powers all of open finance, right? I mean, the idea of open finance is you know, for a consumer to be able to safely and securely access their data, to be able to engage with whoever they want to engage with, whether that's, you know, they want to engage with their brokerage to be able to move money from their bank account to fund their brokerage account, or whether it's, hey, I want to, you know, chase a high interest yield on a savings account with a neobank. Uh, so I want to be able to move money into, into that, or whether it's to say, hey, you know, a financial institution has kind of the, 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 the greatest understanding of who a customer is because they go through very robust AML, KYC processes. And so if, if the, other, the other use case is, hey, can we use the data that sits on a financial institution to verify a customer's identity for any number of use cases? So the whole idea of open finance is powered by data, whereby the data from a financial institution or a brokerage is pulled into an experience that then powers, you know, some other third-party experience. So I think data is the crux of open finance. 
I appreciate that. And so I'd love to, um, if you're willing, Jamie, to jump into some of those use cases now. Um, particularly, I'd like to start um, with some of these cases I know Fiserv is working around biller data. Um, so let's start there. Yeah, sure. You know, one of the really interesting use cases that we've that we've started to explore uh, with with biller data is, you know, there are hundreds of millions of uh, of Americans, um, a couple hundred, well, maybe fifty or hundred million of those of those Americans actually have a very thin credit file. Um, and so, while those individuals may be, you know, paying their uh, paying their their utility bills, their cell phone bill. Um, whatever it might be on time every single month. And so they're sort of building credit worthiness with those different billers or with those merchants. Uh, you know, they don't have any traditional um, credit instruments, credit card or a mortgage or, a, you know, a loan of some kind. So they have a thin credit file. And so one of the use cases we're exploring is, hey, can we actually uh, leverage biller data, plug into biller data to then be another data source that a lender could use in assessing Zach's credit worthiness? So, you know, those bureaus can actually look at that data and say, hey, you know, at, at the bureau level, hey, you know, Zach pays his, again, cell phone bill, utility bills on time every month, no late fees, no late pays, whatever. Hey, could that potentially, you know, could we use that to increase your credit score, which makes you more credit worthy from a financial institution perspective? Or, uh, you know, can a financial institution themselves leverage that data to assess your credit credit worthiness in addition to your FICO score that they may pull from a from a bureau, uh, and so that data can be really helpful in you know both expanding who is credit worthy uh, and also expanding you know the universe of credit worthy customers for financial institutions that are looking to you know perhaps move a bit down market and you know grow their business by you know what would traditionally be a subprime uh, loan, but now is ultimately you know, a subprime loan that is backed by real data on that consumer and how they pay uh, all types of different bills. Right. So that, that type of biller data seems more ubiquitous um, than, I guess, other traditional credit type data. What are some of the hurdles, I guess, in, in, in expanding the pie to be able to include this type of biller data in credit decisioning? Yeah, well, one is just there are um, thousands and thousands and thousands of billers. And so one, one, um, you know, one uh, hurdle is just frankly, like getting access to that data and, and finding, you know, consistent and, and again, safe consumer permission ways to access that data. And there's not a lot of providers out there um, that can sort of, that can do that. Uh, Fiserv, we're in a unique position in the marketplace where, you know, we have um, the largest uh, bill pay platform in the market with CheckFree. And so we maintain those connections with CheckFree and that kind of positions us in a way where we have, you know, unparalleled access to that biller data. Um, the second piece truly, it comes down to sort of normalizing that data, right? So most billers, you know, they don't have an API available. Um, so, you know, the key part of this is, hey, how do you, you know, get access to the data with consumer permission? And then how do you bring that data into a platform that then normalizes it, looks at, you know, all the different line items that you may see on a bill to then power that experience. Um, and so there's a lot of magic and artificial intelligence and things that happen behind the scenes to normalize that data to make it useful for a bureau or for a financial institution in leveraging that data to make a credit decision. Jamie, I want to shift gears a little bit. I know in Tearsheet's coverage, we spend some time, you know, talking about alternative data sources, but I'm more curious to hear what Fiserv is doing um, with traditional FI data. Um, 
What are some of the use cases there that you guys are working on? The most traditional use case, you know, where, where the, the AIS platform sort of grew up was in personal financial management, right? So most financial institutions and most fintechs are offering some kind of personal financial management use case where, you know, you can see the consumer can see how they're spending their money, where they're spending their money, um, you know, uh, where they may have cash flow, potential cash flow shortfalls based on historical spending and future uh, future bill pays, future known ACH money movement out. Um, so we've been, you know, that's kind of where we grew up as an organization. Um, and now we're starting to leverage that same, um, that same data to power other types of use cases. So for example, you know, we're, we're deploying in Q4 of this year, a subscription management service where we can actually identify, you know, where Zach has five different music streaming services and six different video streaming services and, you know, all these sort of random um, subscriptions, identify those and offer you kind of a view of what those subscriptions are with the ability to actually deep link into cancel those subscriptions if you so choose. Uh, so that's kind of one use case. Another use case would be, hey, like, let's look at the transaction data in an account and let's identify all of the taxable expenses that may have hit that account. And that could be then fed into you know, your annual tax prep that you do with a, C, with, with a CPA or with you know, an automated online platform where you can actually choose, you know, pick out, hey, where are, the, you know, where are your charitable contributions? Where are your sort of you know, home office expenses that may be tax deductible? Identify those, pull them out and use them in that, in that, in that way. Um, and then there are, you know, so that's kind of the traditional FI focused use case. And then certainly we're using that same data to power um, merchants. So an example with merchants is, hey, you know, uh, a lot of merchants want to move away from pay with credit card or debit card. They're developing sort of wallets for those merchants. And the idea there is let's make it really, really easy for a consumer to make a payment at checkout because merchants tend to see large uh, fallout or abandonment at checkout when it's time for payment because the consumer doesn't have their credit card or debit card on them at the time. And so they abandon and the cart stays full and it never, you know, they never fill in the order. So a lot of these merchants are looking to create a wallet experience where, you know, yes, their credit and debit card may be part of that wallet, but also they may offer, you know, a pay by bank experience. And that same data that powers personal financial management from the FI can also power a pay by bank experience where you can pay directly from your DDA at your financial institution, again, safely, securely, consumer permissioned, um, with potentially balanced checks at the time of checkout. Um, that ultimately, you know, again, enables a really seamless experience for the consumer, but also reduces a whole bunch of interchange fees that that merchant is paying to, uh, to the large credit card providers. That's an interesting use case. Um, I just want to go back to something you said, Jamie, about um, growing up in PFM. Um, I guess this feels like the logical maturation of PFM as opposed to just like sort of small loop feedback, you know, to, to a customer, you're actually enabling customers to do things they haven't been able to do before with PFM. Uh, maybe you can zoom out and talk about where we are uh, with, with PFM, I guess, in this context. Yeah. So, I mean, PFM continues to be a really critical use case for financial institutions, right? Financial institutions are competing with, uh, with neobanks and with very niche players uh, in the fintech space that are doing, you know, if you think about like a mint.com or you think about all of these sort of niche players that are 
or or a you know a, um, a gig economy play where they're just you know they're they're providing services to a gig economy worker. You know, financial institutions are competing not only for those assets but also for those eyeballs uh, to keep those eyeballs engaged with the financial institution versus you know going out and engaging more heavily with some gig economy app, right? And so, personal financial management can play a key role in keeping that consumer engagement on the financial institution. And the way that they do that, ideally, is by you know providing really actionable insights to that consumer to help them along in their financial journey. Right? It's not just you know pie charts with here's how you spend your money. It's also those proactive alerts to say, again, you're going to run out of money. Oh, you could save money by doing this. Hey, we recommend that you you know, pay down this, this third party credit card debt. Oh, hey, we have a, a, you know, a loan consolidation offer for you. It's all of those things that really, you know, keep those eyeballs and that engagement on the financial institution that really keeps the consumer engaged. Yeah, it really feels like even though PFM has been around for 20 years, that it's, it's, it's the core use case for most consumers, right? With financial institutions, like help me manage my money better and more automatically. The other thing that I would just call out too is, you know, when you do have really solid connectivity from a third-party held-away asset perspective. So you're, you know, you, you're a financial institution that has a consumer that is connected. You know, three held-away credit cards, their held-away mortgage, whatever it may be. Um, you know, that actually powers the financial institution to do some really uh, targeted marketing to that individual, right? They can, they have a full picture of, of everything about that consumer and they can use that again, it goes back to the thin credit file, right? They could potentially use that for, you know, making credit decisions. They could use that for offering credit to a consumer. They could use it for offering, you know, a high yield savings account as a promo to a consumer because they know they've got, you know, two or three or four held away savings accounts at you know, Marcus or Chime or whoever that are offering them high yield, they could use that data to then power marketing. Um, and that's obviously really important, again, to financial institutions that are looking to drag back some of that those assets that have left the FI over the years. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about another use case um, and and shift gears to, to look at cryptocurrency. And, and clearly, it's early days there, but I'd love to hear how um, how increased data sharing and connectivity is empowering sort of new, new use cases in, with digital assets as well. Well, I think there's probably a couple of different angles on this. Um, one is, you know, you have the emergence of a whole host of um, cryptocurrency wallets that gives you access to buy, hold and sell all types of different cryptocurrencies. One of the key elements uh, for those um, for those crypto wallets is the ability again to move money securely into the crypto wallet, so the consumer can then leverage that those funds to buy cryptocurrency. So again, access to data and open finance enables that money movement from a financial institution or a neo bank or whoever into a cryptocurrency wallet to be able to then facilitate uh, that buy hold sell experience in the wallet. So that's kind of the first use case I think that open finance really powers. Uh, then we're kind of at the center of that today. You know, we do power a lot of money movement for um, for various uh, coin wallets today. Uh, but the other piece that's becoming even more important is, you know, if you're a if you're a wealth advisor or a financial broker of some kind, uh, you know, you're starting to see your customers start to sort of slice off a bunch of their investable assets and move them away from traditional stocks, bonds, you know, um, mutual funds, start to move them into cryptocurrency. 
And so you kind of lose visibility to your, your customers or your clients, you know, financial standing. And so the other piece that's really important here is, you know, again, the ability to have a provider from a financial data aggregation perspective that can go into those various coin wallets and pull back the data around what are your holdings, what are your, you know, what are your losses and gains, what percentage of your overall portfolio is invested in cryptocurrency, is that safe, is that, you know, aligned to your, to your investment objectives or not. And to be able to provide advice based on those cryptocurrency holdings. Um, and that's one area today that is fairly blind for most, uh, for most wealth managers. They don't have visibility to that. And so you're starting to see uh, financial data aggregators and platforms like ours start to go into the Coinbase's, the Kraken's, and pull that data out to then make it available to financial institutions, yes, but also to uh, brokerages. I think one of the things that I'm hearing, Jamie, is... is- as, as new use cases come um, empowered by open finance, that there's almost like a convergence, right? Instead of thinking of like billers over here and FIs here and crypto here, that it creates sort of a, a you know, a, a rebundling of sorts of all these different types of, of services. And it, do you see it similarly? Yeah, absolutely. And frankly, I see there's a lot of uh, growth potential in those different uh, those different data types and use cases. So, you know, just a couple that come to my mind are, you know, income and employment verification. So yes, you can see some income data in, again, looking at a financial institution statement, right? Looking back at transactions, you can see, you know, payroll coming in, you can see the history of that payroll and you could, you know, you could make some assumptions for their overall income kind of before taxes plus their employment history. But now there's, you know, emergence of direct access to payroll providers to be able to look into, you know, everything from, you know, base salary to bonuses earned uh, to employment history and actually pull, you know, very granular W-2 level data that can, again, be used for, you know, a relationship with a broker, uh, with a a wealth manager uh, for use in a lending use case. Um, Another great example is you know, small business data, right? And so plugging into, you know, whatever your, um, you know, whatever your accounting platform is and leveraging that same data again, so that if you're a small business and you want to go, you know, apply for a small business loan, instead of having this cumbersome process of collecting all this paperwork and scanning it, faxing it, whatever it might be, you know, again, just providing direct access into an accounting platform or a payroll platform or whatever it might be to then power, uh, you know, that lending process. So as touchless as possible, as automated as possible. And that's really compelling both for the small business owner that doesn't have time to send all this paperwork in and track it all down. And for the financial institution that's trying to take as much paper and process out of lending as they possibly can from an efficiency perspective. Jamie, I really appreciate your time in this conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet Podcast today. Zach, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.